Good morning. Before we have prayer this morning, uh, I have a sad note. Mary Perot, Zoe Scott's mother, passed away this week. And just to lay some some relation for everybody who doesn't know, Zoe married to Dean. Okay, it's her mom. She's ninety nine. Was ninety nine. Uh, passed away this week. Uh, Zoe and Dean's daughter married Christie's son Michael. So our grandchildren's great grandmother who passed this week. And I've met Mary on on many occasions. And Mary was one of the sweetest, kindest cheerfulest people and you can see her influence in zoe and influence in stephanie um and we are just so thankful uh for for mary's uh, uh life uh there will be a memorial service uh february 6th at 2 p.m at the south flint michigan sda church um for those who are interested in that and mary will be missed so let's begin class of prayer uh, gracious father in heaven we we thank you so much for your love and and we uh, thank you for this opportunity to study. And we ask that you will join us, enlighten us, lead us, and may we uplift you. We also want to remember uh, the Scott family, uh, the entire um, family there that uh, Mary has passed and they're grieving. Bring them comfort and, and may they look past the grave to the, to the resurrection and the soon coming uh, where you will bring us all back together with our loved ones. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing uh, Lesson 7 in the quarterly, the uh, message of Hebrews in the last days. And uh, the title of the lesson is Jesus' Anchor of the Soul. And the lesson in the first paragraph, the Sabbath lesson, says Hebrews 5.11 to 6.20 interrupts the theological exposition about Jesus' priesthood in our behalf. Paul inserts there a severe warning about the dangers of falling away from Christ. The lesson sees these verses in starting in verse 11 uh, chapter 5 verse 11 through 620 as an interruption of a theological treatise about Jesus as our heavenly high priest in the new covenant in the order of Melchizedek uh, are these verses an actual interruption I don't see it that way at all I think they see it this way because they again have a legal lens and they're reading these things through the legal mechanics of a heavenly high priest doing mechanical stuff in a courtroom in heaven or a, a sanctuary building in heaven, uh, and they're not understanding that our God is the God of reality. He is the God of creation, and that what is being described here is the actual, literal, healing, transforming, regenerating, renewal, whatever you want to call it, the process of actually reclaiming sinners from sin. And Paul then, after giving some uh, theological explanations about Jesus' work in heaven, he makes an application. It's, it's an application of, of, of metaphor, if you will. So that I don't see this as an interruption at all. Paul's saying that, uh, and he goes on to say that he would have a greater discussion about Christ's work in heaven to give them greater details about the mechanics of what Christ is doing if they were only mature enough to handle that conversation. But they're not mature, and he has much more to say about this, but they can't handle it. So there's no point in going into greater detail with it. That's what he says, basically. Uh, another way to say this is it's pointless to explain as a metaphor. It's pointless to explain surgical techniques on how you perform a liver transplant to somebody in alcoholic cirrhotic liver failure when they haven't even come to the point that they realize they need to quit drinking. 
It's a worthless discussion to have that surgical technique. This is how we can, and, and the surgeon will go through all these things to save you when you haven't even come to the point that you know you need to give up alcohol. Yes. You might as well be talking to a three-year-old. You might as well, and Paul makes the point. Well, we're going to uh, talk about you should be on uh, meat. You're on your infants on baby food still. Paul makes that point right here in this context, in this section. The point Paul's saying is Christ had to, he's explaining what Christ had to accomplish, and how he applies that accomplishment for the saving of human beings from sin. And that first accomplishment is in the species, understand the species human. You know, humans are a different species than angels. We all, we all agree with that? Okay. And the species human was created in Eden, in Adam, and corrupted in Adam, and became terminal, dead in trespass and sin in Adam. And the species human was saved in the individual personhood of Jesus Christ, who became a real human, lived a sinless life, overcame where none of us could overcome, and established a sinless humanity, a perfect, mature, sinless humanity. And thus the species human is saved because Jesus was fully human and overcame where we could not. Even if no other member of the race accepts him, humanity, the species, was saved in the person of Jesus. As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Okay? But God's brilliant plan in Jesus was such that not only did he save the species in his own personal journey, it was only and exclusively up to him to save the species. None of our participation had any bearing on whether the species human was going to be saved, God committed himself in Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, to overthrow Satan's power and to reclaim and redeem the species human. And simultaneously doing, he made available a solution, a remedy, a cure, that any individual human sinner can participate in and receive individual reclaiming, redeeming, saving, salvation, renewal, rebirth, whatever you want to call it, but restoration to righteousness, to actual at one mit with God again. It's real. No other individual human being, uh, if no other individual accepted it, we still have the species human and the victory of Christ and the person of Christ. So Paul is saying that if you've been accepted to Jesus, excuse me, if you accept Jesus, you've been one to trust, if you have experienced the joy of his love and, and his presence, the freedom from the guilt and shame that you had before you came to know him, the knowledge of what salvation actually means. And then after all of this, you refuse to grow. You refuse to mature. You refuse to develop. And instead, you choose to go back to the same destructive patterns of living outside of God's will, law, design for life, that you will harden your heart and you will eventually be lost because there's no other remedy for your condition other than the one you've just rejected. That's what he's saying. Let's look at the scripture now. This is not, so, so my point I'm making here is, this is not an interruption in the theological treatise about a high priestly work in heaven. This is an actual application in our life because the actual work of Jesus in heaven is the work of administering, I like this, 
You ever think of Jesus as ministering for us in heaven? How about administering? He's administering what he's achieved into our lives. That's what it means. His ministry is to administer what he achieved into our lives. So let's look back at these verses. Yes, a hand somewhere. Oh, I was just thinking like you administer medication. Yes. Or like you are administrator of a business, you're helping to keep things on track. Okay. So administer medication, administer, or minister to. Do doctors and nurses minister to patients? So ministry in the design law is actual real-world interventions to address real problems of existence for the purpose of solving and resolving those problems for the restoration of actual righteousness in sinners. That's what what real ministry is. Um, so the lesson asks us to read, starting in verse, uh, or the, the, the reference is Hebrews 5.11 to, to 6.20 that they see as interruption. But let's just back up three verses and start in, in 5.8 and see what's described here, and then we'll go right through. Uh, starting in 5.8, it says, Although he was a son, talking about Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect. If you have the human law model, which is all focused on behaviors, do's and don'ts, sin is breaking the rules, legal trouble, requires punishment. If you have that model, this is really hard to comprehend. Once made, Jesus was always sinless. He never did a bad deed. He never broke a rule. He never committed a sin. So wasn't he always perfect? In the human law model, they seem synonymous. But in a design law model, we understand something completely different. Jesus was always sinless. He never broke a rule. He never broke God's law. He never committed a sin. Tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. But Bible perfection is not about that. Adam and Eve were sinless in their creation in Eden, but they were not yet perfected. Because Bible perfection is about maturity of character such that they, with their individuality, people decide what values, principles, laws they internalize and practice and solidify their character, settling such that they cannot be shaken out of it. So Job became a perfect and righteous man. Perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. He did not become a sinless man. He was a sinner saved by grace, but through that grace was perfected into such that he settled into the truth and no trial, tribulation, loss, abuse, temptation, lie, deceit, friends, enticements, sickness of body, nothing could shake him from his loyalty to God. He was settled. He was perfected. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. No threat to their life could shake them. They were perfected. Bible perfection is maturity of character that we settle into the truth about God and his kingdom and his methods and our loyalty, our love, our devotion to him, and we cannot be shaken from it. And so Revelation describes those perfect saints at the end in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, with these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not controlled by fear and selfishness, survival fittest. I'm afraid that's going to hurt me. I'm going to die. So I will shrink from my own duty under the threat of death. So I I will bow to the idol, not to go to the furnace. 
No, no. The, the mature, those ready for translation, are perfected. They were sinners, saved through the grace of Christ and what he's achieved, and that salvation experience brought them to maturity of character. We'll unpack that some more in a minute. But So right here, once he became perfect, so Christ became human, he was always a sinless human, but as a human being, he had to exercise human abilities, a human mind, a human brain, be tempted as a human in every point like we are, and choose to develop a perfect, sinless human character, which he did. Thus he chose to say no to every temptation and lived out God's living law as a human being. And then we, through our trust in him, metaphor, here's a metaphor, but think about the application of that metaphor. We trust him, we open the heart to him, and the spirit flows in or indwells us, takes what is known to Christ, makes it known to us. I'll send the comforter. He'll take what's mine, make it known to you, Jesus said to his apostles. And the metaphor is, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. When we're grafted into the vine, what does the vine do for the branch? It nourishes it. And when you trust Jesus and open the heart, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit that takes the perfection of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have new heart and right spirit. We're regenerated, recreated, renewed. The Holy Spirit circumcises the heart, meaning cutting away the fear and selfishness of the old man and recreates us in righteousness. It's a literal transforming heart renewal process that we receive not because of our hard work, but because of our love and trust in Christ. So, Christ had to first, it says in the context, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. He had to come as a human, be tempted in every way like us, overcome where we could never overcome, and develop a perfect, sinless human character. Then he becomes the source of salvation. Because without this, without this victory first, he doesn't have anything to give to us to save us. He doesn't have a remedy. He doesn't have a cure. He doesn't have anything to administer to us. So without his victory first, he cannot become our ministering high priest in heaven. And so notice the very next words of Paul after he says, uh, source of salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't get designated to be a ministering high priest until he first overcame and perfected his humanity. Yes. And I appreciate that what he achieved could be applied forward and backward. That's right. That has to do with God's outside of time status. That's right. So people will say, when we think in our linear existence, okay, that's fine. That's good for all of us moving forward. What about the people before Christ? God is the creator of time. He lives outside of time. All points in time are same to him. Christ, when he became our human savior, he entered into our time. And he lived a linear existence for 33 and a half years on this earth. He achieved the victory, procured the remedy, goes back to heaven, and then God, who lives outside of time, has the remedy to apply anywhere in time. But if Christ never achieves the victory, God doesn't have the remedy to apply anywhere in time. So Elijah, Enoch, Moses, they were all saved through the same remedy we're saved through. They all received, in faith, a new heart and right spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. 
applied in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit in their day and age. It's all the same. So thank you for that, Linda. Uh, so he only became our high priest in the order of Melchizedek after he first developed a perfect human character, the remedy for sin. He destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness. Remember, he was, he was born under law, the law of sin and death, Galatians 4.4. 4 took upon himself this condition, was able to be tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin, and we're tempted by our own evil desires, James 1, 14, 15. And in Gethsemane, you see that humanity. It agonizes him. It causes great emotional anguish. And the emotions that he experiences in Gethsemane tempt him to do what? To go away from the cross, to save self. That's the core of sin, selfishness. But with every temptation, he overcame through love and trust. Through love and trust. Continuing on with the Bible verse here. We we have much to say about this. About Christ perfecting, becoming perfect, and then becoming our hybrid. We have much to say about this. But it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. Paul would love to go into deeper details on the mechanics of what Jesus accomplished and how he applies it to our lives to heal us, but they're not ready for it. In fact, next verse, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Think about what just was said here. This is deep. This is profound. Adventists really should should resonate with this. Have you ever heard of a teaching called righteousness by faith? If you're still in milk, you're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness by faith. You're not acquainted. Paul's saying if we're immature, still in the infant formula. And we're not acquainting with this. What is the infant stuff, the elementary stuff? Paul tells you uh, in verse chapter 6, verse 1. He says, the elementary, let's not lay the elementary foundation, which is repentance from acts that lead to death. That's elementary. That's children's stuff. Well, what are repentance from acts? What, are, what, is, what is that talking about? Repentance from acts that lead to death. Where are we focusing now? Behavior. Behavior. That's right. The do's and the don'ts. Man looks on the inward appearance and God looks on the outward appearance. No. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart and the outward appearance. Are behaviors heart or outward appearance? Yeah. Man is always about the do's and the don'ts, the behaviors. It's never about the heart. God's about the heart. It's the motive that matters. We'll unpack this some more in just a moment. But if we're infants, we focus on the do's and the don'ts. We we, we want to be fruit monitors, fruit inspectors. Isn't that right? Think about the children in school. This is what he's talking about. Infants, children, elementary school, elementary stuff. Think about kids in elementary school. Do you ever have tattletales in elementary school? Why do you have tattletales? What are they focused on? Are they focused on being the most mature, healthy people and governance of themselves they can be? Or are they focused on the rules and the do's and the don'ts and what everybody else is doing? I can imagine in school say, Teacher Johnny pulled his mask down. <laughs> Can't you hear that? And we have a lot of little 
infants in society running a lot of things today. It's all about the rules. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter about the, the reality. It's about the rules. Got to keep the rules. This is the penal legal view of salvation. Sin is bad, doing bad stuff, which gets you in legal trouble with the magistrate and the authorities in heaven, which requires something be done to pay the legal debt and to assuage the wrath of the, of the infinite sovereign. All this stuff is what Paul says is the baby stuff. The real stuff, real righteousness, what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. No, it doesn't say that. It says, yes, you're all over it. It's, it says in 2 we might become, become. What does the word become? Does, does the word become mean the same thing as being declared even though you're not? And that's what penal legal theology teaches, that, that when you accept Jesus, you're legally declared righteous even though you're not actually righteous. But the scriptures teach real righteousness, you get a new heart and right spirit. You're reborn. You're recreating another person. You become the righteousness of God. That's reality. Penal legal systems cheat people of this reality, give them a false security. It's actually about, the plan of salvation is actually about bringing beings who are alienated from God because of fear and selfishness in their own heart back into unity or at one meant with God. We're one with him again. We're united in heart, spirit, attitude, motives, principles, the way we live. His law is written where? In our heart and minds. That's the whole goal here. Continuing on. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is right from our lesson. Right. What's being said here, though? Constant use in the church, train themselves. Is there a law involved in this? Yeah. What law is this? Law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you... If you want strong math ability, you got to work problems. Strong musical skill, practice your instrument. Strong language skills, speak the language. You want strong critical reasoning ability? you got to think for yourself. You can't surrender your thinking to others. But the children, understand, back to elementary school, children actually, as children, don't have yet the hardware. Their brains haven't developed. They haven't finished the prefrontal cortex developing, really, until you're 25 is when it finishes. They actually don't have the capacity to do real critical reasoning yet. And so as children, they need a schoolmaster. They need someone to tell them the answer. So it's right that little children, actually 8, 9, 10, 12-year-olds, they need someone, and this is what they do. They look to somebody to tell them the answer. Teacher, who's right? Referee, umpire, they're looking for a rule. Mom, dad, they're looking for a ruling authority to give a verdict when they have a disagreement. They need some authority to tell them, and then whoever they invest with authority, they believe. Paul's saying that these adults, these not developmental children, these are adults now who should be mature, who should have the ability to discern, are still infants, Meaning that they're still looking and practicing these methods of looking for some external authority to tell them the answer. So they look toward whatever, whoever they've invested with their authority to tell them the answer. That could be a pastor, it could be a priest, it could be a teacher, it might be a parent, it might be a doctor, it might be the CDC or the FDA or the president or a Supreme Court justice. Some person in authority they surrender to 
Well, the CDC has said, Dr. So-and-so has said. And if the government says that you must violate another person's conscience, if the government says you must violate another person's conscience, and somebody somebody protests, they said, but we must obey the law unless the law violates the law of God. And we can't find anywhere in Scripture that there's a rule that says you should not let the government inject you with something. There's no rule in Scripture that says that, especially when it's t- when we're told it's a medicine that will help us. And for you to resist that, well, you're disobeying the government. And the Bible says we should obey the laws of the land. This is how children think. But when they hear other church members that they've known protesting, say, no, it's a violation of conscience. I'm convicted that that's not what I should do with my spirit temple. Then what do they do? What do the children do? Do they study for themselves? No, they don't study for themselves. They will have a little bit of an argument, but then they'll look for a ruling authority. Church pastor, conference president, general conference, give us a rule. Tell us the answer. And then some church committee compromised of employed people of the, of the organization who have no authority to make positions for the, for the church body, put out declarations, claims that are not actual facts or evidence, that are on a letterhead with a certain claim of authority. And the children grab onto that and say, see, the church has said this is not a religious liberty issue. It can't be a religious, religious liberty issue because there's nothing in the Bible that says we're not, we're not supposed to do it. And this is what we have. And we have much to say about this to you all. <laughs> but many people in our church, in our country, cannot bear it. Sunday's lesson... Uh, asks us to read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because they're, they're, to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That's uplifting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Encouraged, discouraged, frightened, get a little anxious inside. Well, what's the first question we need to ask when we read passages like this? What law lens are you reading it through? Are you reading it through the lens that, that assumes God's law works like human law, those rules that require enforcement? Are you viewing it through the lens that God is creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality work? This text, for those who have assumed that God's law works like human law, becomes very troubling. How many times have you heard, or maybe because we were all children once, and we all grew through that childhood to maturity, whether it was physical childhood or it was we were new converts to Christ and we came through our spiritual childhood. We've all been children at some point in our life. So, so whether we ourselves or somebody else we know has struggled with this because they're in a certain childish way of looking at things, 
They've experienced the joy of salvation. They've given their heart to Christ. They've had the peace of the guilt and shame taken away. But then after all of that, they fell short. They committed a sin. A sin that they knew was a sin when they committed the sin, and they already knew it was wrong. They'd repented of it before when they first came to Christ, and they did it again. And then they read this text. No hope for me. I'm crucifying Jesus all over again. You've ever heard people do this? If the mind is thinking through human law, it also often becomes very discouraging. Design law, though, makes it very simple. Paul's merely saying that if someone has partaken of Christ and experienced the restoring, rejuvenating, healing presence of the Holy Spirit and later choose to reject Christ and the Holy Spirit, that there's no other cure, remedy, or solution available. That's what he's saying. It's not about a particular symptom or momentary lapse or choice to commit a bad act. It is about after that act has happened, just like you would with your doctor. You've been working with your doctor because you know you've got, and you pick your health problem. Say smoking problem with, with lung, lung disease. And your doctor's working with you to get you well, and you're convicted you need to quit. And he's helping you with this or that medicine or treatment. But you break down and you smoke between appointments with your doctor. What's the right action to take if you want to get healthy? You go back to the doctor and say, Doc, I really struggled this month. I smoked four cigarettes. I just can't quite get over it. I need your help. Isn't that the right approach? That's what my patients do. The wrong approach would be, he was so gracious. I get went there with lung disease after smoking two packs a day for, for many, many years. He was so gracious. He didn't kick me out of his office. He was willing to help me. He was kind to me. He, 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 he didn't hold it against me. He didn't look down upon me. He told me he could help me. Oh, I felt so good. I wasn't condemned. It felt so good. But now I smoked since our appointment. I can't go back to him. Blew my one chance. This is how many people approach it, because they have the wrong law model. They fail to understand that the problem of sin is a condition of being that God is working through his agencies, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, etc., to fix and heal and restore and deliver us from. I'm telling you straight, there is nothing penal legal in the true gospel message. There is law that God used in Scripture many places, In the same way, parents have rules for kids at home. Parents that love kids will set rules for them. But in reality, their relationship is not a penal legal relationship. Those rules are for children who don't understand consequence of destructive behavior to protect them and help them grow up, like brushing your teeth when you're a kid. Yes. And not running out in the street. And not running out in the street. And if a child disobeys a parent, won't brush the teeth. Or if a child disobeys a parent, runs out in the street, maybe gets hit by a car, what does the parent do? Well, we'll need someone to sacrifice themselves to pay me a blood debt so I won't kill my child who disobeyed my rule. I'm required now by justice and righteousness to kill them for breaking my rule. This is the corruption. This is pagan. This is Romanism in Christianity. It's not gospel Christianity. So how I rendered this in the Remedy New Testament, uh, here's how I wrote it. 
Here I paraphrased it. He says, it is impossible for those whose minds have been enlightened with the truth about God, those who have tasted the goodness of heaven, who have participated in the spirit of truth and love, who have experienced how good are God's ways and the, the revitalizing power of the future age, to be restored to health and God's original ideal if they reject all this. For they reject the only remedy, and no other cure exists. Their loss pierces the heart of God all over again as they spurn his never-ending love. It's very straightforward. Uh, second paragraph reads, To have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit are synonyms. Uh, the gift of God may refer to his grace or the Holy Spirit through whom God imparts his grace. What do you think about that? The gift may refer, well, okay, Jesus said he was going to his Father to ask the Father to send the Comforter. There's no question that sending the Comforter and the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. In Desire of Ages 671, Ellen White writes it this way, the Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that Jesus could solicit from his Father. So there's no question that the Holy Spirit's a gift to us. There's no question about that. But is that what Paul is referring to here in Hebrews when he actually lists the gift and then right after lists the Holy Spirit? I don't think it is. I, I think Paul is not referring to the Holy Spirit here. In fact, what is the office work of the Holy Spirit? What, what did he say he was going to send the comforter to do? Convict of sin, lead into all truth, take what's mine, make it known to you. All these descriptions are doing something, and I think they're doing something with the actual gift, the gift that Paul is referring to here, the gift that the Bible tells us God gifted us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And, and it says we, if, if those who have tasted the gift... Psalms 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said, Jesus is the word made flesh. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. John 6, 53. I'm making the case that the real gift that we are to taste, to ingest, to internalize, to partake, to eat, is the truth about Jesus Christ, it wins us to trust that we open the heart and we receive from the Spirit the victory of Christ. It's the gift. The Spirit administers the gift to us. And John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus Christ to be said. And I think they, they I don't know what the you know, word of that is, but my impression is intimately know then that's what the Bible word no means, yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Healing. Exactly. And this is and where do we get the healing from? From the gift. Which is Jesus, but applied via the Holy Spirit. So uh, that desire of ages six seventy one quote The Spirit was the highest of all gifts that Jesus could solicit from his Father. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and submission of men to the satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person, 
of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is the spirit in the heart that makes the spirit. So again, the spirit is a gift to bring us the gift of Jesus into our lives, make it effectual in our hearts. In fact, as we think about this gift, for God so loved the world that he loaned us Jesus Christ. 6,000 years borrowed from the Father, his Son, to accomplish a task. Is that what the Bible says? How long... As far as we understand from all inspiration, will Jesus be a real human being? For all eternity, forever moving forward. He was given. How long will the Spirit need to do what we just read about here? How long will the Spirit need to regenerate us, to heal us, to renew us? Not forever at all. Absolutely not. No, no, wrong. Once we are glorified... The Holy Spirit won't have to deliver us from sin, convict us of sin, renew us in righteousness. We will be eternally sealed and settled and perfected. We will be independent, autonomous beings living and operating. So the the gift of the Spirit in this role to do this work is a gift that we need, but it is not an eternal work of the Holy Spirit to do for all eternity future. But Jesus being human, it's a gift that never quits. Never ends. Yes. Do you think that the um, this unbelief in the possibility of a human being actually changing from trust, you know, lack of trust to trust, uh, centers on the idea that a person has chosen to believe that they they cannot change themselves? and that they have to require somebody else to declare them changed? I, I think it has to do with um, that truth. We cannot change ourselves. Ethiopia can't change his skin. Leper can't change his spot. That's what the Bible says. Okay. But also that realization under the false legal model that there is actual no changing, at least not to glorification. Glorification is when we're changed. Okay. But here on earth today, there's no real changing. It's only legal accounting. Your records are declared it in such a way, but you're not actual change. You're declared even though you're not. I think it has to do with that reality under the umbrella of the false legal model. Uh, let's go to Monday's lesson. A uh, quick question. Back, back to the Holy Spirit not needing to apply what Christ has done into our lives after we're glorified. Won't the Holy Spirit still need be leading us into infinite truth and infinite love? But, I mean, it's not like the Holy Spirit's going to go take a vacation for the rest of eternity. Well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. When we have um, the access to God that we will have in yeah, the hereafter, face-to-face conversations, face-to-face conversations, um, we won't. We we will be indwelt in a way that we're not indwelt. Um, our, our, we will we will actually be shining lights, literally, some type of of visible light shining through us because because we are so connected to God uh, in a way that we can't imagine. So so there's that aspect of it, but not not this aspect yeah. of it. 
No, you won't, you yeah. won't so, need to apply the healing remedy for us. Enjoying life for change. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it'll be a growing positive relationship. There's no question. So I'm not suggesting we won't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Right. No. But the work, this, this work of healing, regenerating, recreating will have been completed is all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. I had to that... You know, I've, I've been thinking, you know, how do you love an invisible being that you can't see, usually can't hear, can't Thanks. touch, and so on, yet you're supposed to love it, this being? And I, I've been thinking a lot about that as far as, you know, this being is so close to us, we can't see him. Not so far away. Since I live in a far place, but I also live in your heart. So this being is actually too close to see. He's inside with you. In you. And I think in heaven, extrapolating beyond, God will be in us all of us so much that, and we will be know, we will know as we are known. It says, and we're known very detailed manner by God, and we will know even as we're known. And so, this being will then fill all of us. You know, I think even in the future, that connection with God will be so intimate. No question about that. No question. Yes, Wendell. There's no question that, you know, the, the glorification of human bodies and whatnot and, and restoration to heaven. There's an additional element of healing, though, that it's mentioned, um, the leaves of the tree and the life are for the healing of the nations. So there's healing that's going to continue beyond our arrival, so to speak, physically in heaven. Okay. Um, Monday's lesson, uh, the third paragraph says, When the religious leaders crucified Christ, they did it because Jesus posed a threat to their supremacy and autonomy. They had hoped to eliminate Jesus as, the, as a person and destroy a, power, a powerful and dangerous enemy. Similarly, the gospel challenges the sovereignty and self-determination of the individual at the most fundamental level. The essence of Christian of uh, Christian life is to take up the cross and deny oneself. Any any concerns with what was read, or do y'all go? That's right. A big concern with that. I'm a big concern. Good. What was your concern? If they're if they're taking away the, the possibility of a full exercise of human agency from the equation. That is a huge... You're exactly right, Ken. You're all over the issue. I think they've mixed issues here. They've mixed two issues. And the issues they've mixed are sovereignty, individual sovereignty versus self-determination. They've mixed them in the same sentence, that the gospel challenges our sovereignty and self-determination, and, and, and that is not the case. Sin is selfishness. Sin is... Uh, Satan sought to rise above, to establish rulership over, to become sovereign over God and others. And those actuated by the satanic spirit will always seek to uh, put themselves in authority over others, to exercise rule and power over others. The, uh, the few ruling elites exploiting the masses for their benefit. Every human government in human history ends up with a few ruling elites controlling the masses for the benefit of the few ruling elites. And you can look through history and just look at that dynamic. And this is why all the kingdoms of the earth are Satan's, because they all operate on the rule of law, taxing the masses to the advantage of the few and many other ways of taking advantage. The gospel challenges this and establishes God as creator and as sovereign. And in God's kingdom, who is the greatest? Those that serve the most. 
Christ did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the form of a servant, all the way down to the cross, and thus he becomes exalted. Uh, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He seeks to save his life, will lose it, but he who loses his life will find it. In God's kingdom, is exactly the opposite of Satan's kingdom. And why is God or Jesus the most exalted? Because they're the ones who serve the most. Everything is, con- all life originates with God. All life is sustained by God. He is constantly giving of himself for every living entity in the universe. He does not need anything from us to strengthen him, to establish him, to build him up. He needs nothing. We need everything from him. This is why he's the greatest. This is how his kingdom works. God does not get power, wealth, or anything from us. We get it all from him. And then when we realize that, we respond with love and adoration and a desire to emulate, and we use what the Lord has given us to minister and bless to others in our community. And the more you give, the more you receive. And what is it you receive? Love. The more love you give, the more love you receive. You can't give away more love than is poured into you. But the ways of the world are the ways of taking, of uplifting self. These are human governments, and it's shocking how many Christians are deceived into believing human governments are the way to righteousness or the way to justice, and they trust the human governments. All human governments are part of Satan's kingdom. They all serve Satan's agenda to oppose the people of God. They all do. Every human government. Tim, do you think that has to do with the idea that an individual may think that if they hold all the right beliefs, if they can just multiply those beliefs in other people, they can just clone it out far enough that collectively they'll be able to make everything right? Yes, and that's that's a division of the Holy Spirit that you've just described that we're going to unpack in a moment where you divide truth from love. When you divide truth from love, you get your right doctrines, and you get everybody to adhere to the right doctrines, then you can have unity. It's a, it's a division. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the devil, if he can't get people to reject truth and love, then he divides the principles of God into truth and love. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. Um, but I want to get back to the point we hadn't quite brought to closure, and that was the question of self-determination. We just established very clearly that the gospel does... Uh, undermine the idea of personal sovereignty. No, we are not. We are, we are created beings. And any, any desire to rise over others is a, is, is from Satan's kingdom. So the gospel destroys that element and praise God for that. But what about self-determination? Well, in God's design, in harmony with God's law, who is supposed to determine what you choose and do? Who you trust? What actions you take? Are we to be puppets that God controls? Many Christians pray this. Lord, I mess up so much. I'm tired of being in control. I surrender all. You take control. God will never do it. God will never do it. Because to take control of your individuality would turn you into a puppet or a robot and destroy your individuality and you can no longer love. Love requires liberty. It requires freedom. And the last fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians is... Notice that self-control when the Holy Spirit has his way in our life, he cleans us up and establishes us in godly autonomy such we have self-governance and self-control. So no, we do not lose our, our self-determination. We, it is established in the gospel, not lost. But a human government can't handle that idea 
of self-determination. Okay, he says a human government cannot handle that. Uh, I would suggest to you, and in fact, uh, you'll want to wa- read my blog coming up for the coming week, and it's about um, the uh, the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of men coming up this coming Thursday. And uh, in, in that blog, I, I point out that if people don't have maturity of character such that they have self-control, and in a society where people have self-control, we can have liberty. But if people have gotten rid of God, and understand, in, in, if you're looking at the world through a biblical worldview, if people do not have the Holy Spirit, God working in their heart, they have no self-control. They're given over to passion and lust and selfishness and survival drives. They'll exploit and hurt others. You cannot have mature behavior without the Holy Spirit establishing in you the power of enkratia, uh, authority within oneself. And within crat, like autocrat, democrat, self-control, self-government. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Only the mature have that capacity. And if you take God out of society, there's no God. You're a fool to believe in God. We evolved from slime. We're on our way to next evolution. We need to evolve ourselves with genetic manipulation and implants and other things to make ourselves better. We have to save ourselves because the planet's going to extinction in a, in a global warming event. We, there is no, there is no out of this other than what we do for ourselves. There's no God. If that is your, and you take God out of the schools, you take God out of society, you take God out of the, the marketplace of ideas, the only outcome of that is loss of self-control. More violent crime, families disintegrating, more addictions, more mental health problems, everything falls apart. And the only way then you can have any semblance of order in society if we don't have self-control is an increasing external authoritarian government control like you see in China and North Korea. They have a semblance of order in their societies. You won't find riots in the streets uh, often over there. Occasionally they'll have protests, but they put them down real quick. They have what appears to be order. But what they don't have is freedom. You can only have liberty and order when you have mature Christian people who have God's law in their heart. Understand what's happening in society right now. There is an attack. It's an attack primarily of Satan on the principles of God to remove God from the marketplace of ideas, to destroy the principles of Christianity from the consciousness of people, to make people helpless, anxious, and fearful. They become more disordered. Society starts to crumble. And what happens? Satan gets to step into leadership with his minions to take more authoritative control over people. And people go, now, that's good. We feel safe. That's what's happening. Tuesday's lesson, Hebrews 10, 26-29, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses, the, the law of Moses, died uh, without... Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who trampled the Son of God underfoot and who treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? What law lends? What law lends? You're reading this through. (laughs) 
The lesson states, Paul explains, this is what the lesson states about this. Paul explains that the rejection of Jesus' sacrifice will leave the readers without any means for the forgiveness of sin because there is no other means uh, for that forgiveness besides Jesus. Is the problem with sin getting forgiveness from God, getting God to forgive? Is that the problem? That's what they're suggesting. That's paganism, folks. Paganism, you have an angry God, and you've got to go to the God with a sacrifice. You've got to offer a sacrifice that will be acceptable to the God so the God won't be angry anymore and will forgive you. That's paganism. And it's been incorporated into Christianity under the guise of, well, um, God is so holy and so righteous that sin is offensive to him, and it offends him, and he's angry, and he's wrathful. And justice requires him to use his uh, wrath and power to punish sin. And the minimum punishment is death, but God he also loves you. And because he loves you, he sent his son, and his son lives sinlessly. And died at the cross. And actually at the cross, God put all sins, past, present, and future of every person on Christ. And, he, and God killed Jesus on the cross, punished him on the cross to make the proper legal payment. And then, and then if you accept that payment, Jesus goes to the Father in heaven and he pleads to the Father, my blood, Father, my blood. It's the perfect sinless offering. Now, uh, can we take away your wrath so you won't kill them? So they just spend eternity with you? Yeah. This is paganism. This is not biblical. It's not scriptural. Anybody, who, anybody online, any pastor, any church leader who would like to have this debate with me, let's have the debate. They won't. I've invited for more than a decade now these theologians who hold this view to, to do a public debate, a discussion about this. They won't do it. Because it doesn't hold up to reality. It doesn't hold up to truth. It doesn't hold up to reason. It doesn't hold up to scripture. And it may be a direct challenge to their authority. And direct challenge, it's all predicated on assuming God's law works like human law. Now, it's true. If their assumption was true, if God's law actually functioned no different than human law, he just made up some rules, then it would require him to enforce them. But that's not how God's law works. He's the creator. His laws are the laws reality work upon. Life is built upon them. You can't have life out of harmony with them. And once you understand that difference, then you understand God is not the source of death. You understand what Scripture teaches. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from the nature reap destruction. Yes. It also depends on us, a very legal opinion of what forgiveness is. Okay. Well, okay, tell me what you mean by that, because... Well, I think forgiveness, for me, means much more of a healing attitude than a legal wiping off the books. You're now clean. So if God forgives, does that mean people are healed? No. Jesus forgave those who put him on the cross. They were neither legally set right, nor were they healed. But, But you're right. There is a healing aspect. It's just that you can't heal a heart and mind without the willing participation of that heart and mind. Okay? And the kindness of God leads us to... Oh, yes, there's another element. There it is. So from God's side, if God were unforgiving, if he were wrathful, if he were angry, none of us could be saved if he's holding it against us. There's no question about that. But the Bible says... God was against you until Jesus presented his life to pay the penalty and won him over to be for you. Now wait, that's not how the Bible reads. It reads this way. If God is for you, who can be against you? God was always for us. For God told the Lord he gave his only begotten son. God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. God has always been for us. It has never been an issue that God was against us ever, ever. 
Therefore, nothing had to be done to God to win his forgiveness. Something had to be done to convince us to trust him and repent. That's the difference. So the idea of the forgiving, yes, there is a healing aspect. When we receive it in Christ, it's absolutely uh, the kindness wins us to repentance, wins us to trust, w- w- convicts us, opens the heart, and we open the heart and we receive. And so there's an aspect, too, we can talk about the state of the sinner. Those who put Christ on the cross, were they forgiven by Jesus? Yes. Jesus, did he have the right to forgive sins? Yes. Do you remember earlier when he forgave the paralytic that was let down to the roof? So that you might know that the Son of Man have authority on earth to forgive sins, Pick up your bed and walk. Okay. He's the God who has the power to forgive sins. If we're going to use that model and he forgives them. Were they saved? It's a very clear indictment of the idea that, that sin is about getting God to forgive. No, uh, that salvation is about getting God. to forgive. No, what happened is that even though God has fully forgiven them, they did not get one to trust. They did not repent. So even from though from God they're forgiven, they remain in a state of unforgiveness. Their heart remains unregenerate. They remain unforgiven, even though they're forgiven. Does that make sense to everybody? Because it didn't change them. They remain in rebellion. Yes? Am I oversimplifying to say that repentance would be like the smoker actually quitting smoking when under a doctor's treatment, is it kind of like that? No, no, you're exactly right. It's turning away from and disengaging in the destructive pathways. That's exactly right. Uh, under the umbrella of trusting, uh, trusting God, yes. Uh, who was it that needed to plead with Jesus to get him to forgive Judas? What offering was presented to Jesus? What blood payment was given to Jesus to get Jesus to forgive Judas? You see, it just doesn't add up. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, boy, several other points I wanted to get to. So here's how I rendered that in the remedy. We'll just skip to that. Uh, if we deliberately reject the truth about God and his, lo- and his loving, life-promoting methods, and instead, after God's sacrificed everything to bring us the healing truth, continue to practice self-destructive methods, no further remedy remains. Only the inevitable consequence of unrestrained selfishness, the total destruction of character, perversion of mind, and abject panic and fear when God's unveil unveils his life-giving glory, which transforms the righteous but consumes the wicked, and so forth. Uh, boy, I was going to talk about... Um, I was going to talk about... The uh, the veil that separates us. Do you want me to talk about that? I have questions, though. People have sent in questions already. I was going to talk about the veil. I was going to talk about um, um, what maturity looks like. Hmm. Can we talk about the veil? Yeah, sure. Okay. So that'll be in Thursday's lesson. And if you read uh, Thursday's lesson, uh talks about the anchor behind the curtain or the anchor behind the veil. Okay. Um. And it's talking about the promise. So let's talk about the um, in the Old Testament sanctuary. This is all theater. Understand that the whole thing is a stage with cool costumes, neat script, um, and a play, a drama to act out. The holy place with its lamp and the table with bread and wine and the golden altar represents, and it's all in gold. Represents the church. 
the lamp would shine out into the court, which represents the world. Every Sabbath, the daily priests in their white robes, right robes represent the righteousness of Christ. We've been reborn. It's no longer Christ lives in me. We have right white robes, new character. Uh, every, every Sabbath, they would come into the holy place, the church. They'd come to church, and the high priest would meet them, Jesus, and they would eat the showbread together, the word made flesh. It's the word of God. They study the word of God and partake of the wine together with the high priest on every Sabbath. It's come together, and we worship and partake of the word and have our character strengthened and renewed for another week. This is what is being taught there. Uh, The golden altar represents the hearts of the converted people. This is where the incense was burned, representing the prayers of the saints going up before God. Now, you're one of the daily priests with your white robes who've been renewed in righteousness, and you're in the church, you're in the holy place, and, and and, and behind... Behind there, back there, you want to see God. You, you, you remember Moses. You remember reading the stories. Moses talked to God face to face as a man talks to a friend. And the Shekinah is right there. And you want to talk to God face to face like Moses. And as you look back to the Shekinah, there's something in the way. There's a veil blocking your view, blocking your approach, obstructing your access. And there's something sewn on the veil. And this veil was the only part of the whole system that was rent or destroyed by God. When? So in the, if you understand the dynamic of the visual lesson, here are righteous people who are doing their work for the Lord. They're in the church. They want to come close to God, but something stops them. And at the cross, that thing that stops them is destroyed, open, and a way into God is open. What is it that actually has historically stopped sinners from coming close to God? Lies about God. Lies about God, number one. Satan is the father of lies. I am the truth. And? Satan's lies about God, yes. Satan does, yes. Carnal nature. Our carnal nature. The natural heart is enmity to God. It's against him. That heart, that selfishness we inherited, is an obstacle. At the cross, Christ destroyed the lies. And so if you read scripture, Hebrews 2.14, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, Satan, and his power of death, which are the lies. Destroyed at the cross. And what is the power of death? Fear and selfishness. It's the law of sin and death. He destroyed the lies of Satan, and he destroyed the carnal motives, survival drives, fear and selfishness at the cross. Tempted in every way like we are, but he restored love back into humanity. And thus, the obstacle on, on the veil are angels. Those angels have been helping us. They've been helping us with the lies. They've been bringing us truth. They've been helping to inspire us and motivate us with love. They're ministering to us, but angels could not destroy the lies about God. And they could not destroy the carnal nature and open the way back to God. Only Christ could do that. And this is what the veil represents. The veil represents the obstacles that were destroyed by God through Christ at the cross. So we have living access to our, to, and unity with our Father again. So let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for the truth that you've given us. We pray that you will uh, continue to guide us and uh, enable us to be effective witnesses for you at this time in history because so many are caught up in the very childish schemes of the systems of this world. And boy, we want to call them out. You've called the second message of, of the three angels to call the people out of Babylon, that confusing system in this world. And 
And we just pray you'll make us effective in doing so, that we might see you soon. In your holy name, amen.